Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. wanted to visit this place. We have visited the museum, it feels like a thousand times, but we never come here for some reason. That's fair. I'm not really sure why we never have visited the Hayden Planetarium. But this place is absolutely amazing. They have everything here, and it only complements my favorite exhibit over in the Museum of Natural History, the Gems and Rare Rocks. And that Star Theater was incredible. I've never seen the universe quite like that. I can't wait until they incorporate the latest images from the web telescope. <gasps> That's going to be incredible. What are you looking at now? Well, if I didn't know any better, I'd say they've left out a very important part on this map of the night sky. What? What did they leave off? Look closely. Look very closely. I'm looking. I, I don't see it. Find the center. Then the second star to the right. <laughs> you can't be serious. I'm as serious as Captain... I mean Blackstash. They left Neverland out. This is an outrage. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, I suppose you can leave them some feedback on the comments and suggestions on our way out. You bet I will. Of all things to leave out. I can't believe it! Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hilarious show, Peter and the Starcatcher. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Do you believe in fairies? Well, we hope you do, because it's going to take more than magic to join us on our adventure into the magical world that predated the story of Peter Pan, as we delve into the wondrous show, Peter and the Starcatcher. This revolutionary tale of how the story and the world of Neverland, Peter Pan, and everything else with it flew onto Broadway with as much excitement and childishness as the story being told on the stage every night. But first, we must set the scene for you. So, let us return to a time before the crocodile swallowed that famed clock and Captain Hook still had both hands and laid the groundwork. Peter and the Starcatcher is a play based on the 2004 novel Peter and the Starcatchers by Dave Barry and Ridley Pearson. Adapted for the stage by Rick Illis. 
The play provides a backstory for the characters of Peter Pan, Mrs. Darling, Tinkerbell, and Hook, and serves as a prequel to the J.M. Barry's Peter and Wendy. The play premiered at, La Jolla, at the La Jolla Playhouse in California, running from February 13th to March 8th of 2009. It was co-directed by playwright Rick Ellis's partner, Roger Reese, and Alex Timbers. An instrumental score was written by Wayne Barker. The play, now titled Peter and the Starcatcher, opened off-Broadway at New York Theatre Workshop, beginning performances on February 18, 2011. The show received several extensions, eventually closing on April 24, 2011. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Rick Ellis, musical arrangements by Wayne Barker, directors were Roger Reese and Alex Timbers, Movement by Stephen Hoggett. Scenic Design, Danielle Wirrell. Costing Design, Paloma H. Young. Lighting Design, Jeff Kreuter. And Sound Design, Darren L. West. The show arrived at the Brooks Atkinson Theater on April 15, 2012 and played 319 performances before closing on January 20, 2013. The show would then move to New World Stages, where it would reopen on March 18, 2013 and run until May 25, 2014. The show would also mount two separate national tours during its New York run. During its run on Broadway, it received nine Tony Award nominations and would soar away with five that evening. Best Sound Design of a Play for Darren L. West. Best Lighting Design of a Play for Jeff Kreuter. Best Costume Design of a Play for Paloma H. Young, Best Scenic Design of a Play, Danielle Ware, and Best Featured Actor in a Play for Christian Borrell, who played Blackstash. So, let's set sail on our journey. enters a bare stage. They welcome the audience to the world of the play and describe what's in store. Flying, dreaming, adventure, and growing up. They encourage the audience to use their imaginations to visualize the British Empire. Transported to a bustling port, we meet Lord Leonard Astor, his precious daughter Molly, and her nanny, Mrs. Bumbrick. Two identical trunks are delivered to the port. One contains a precious cargo belonging to the Queen, who has appointed Lord Astor as its custodian to voyage with the trunk abroad aboard the Wasp, the fastest ship afloat, helmed by the old-school chum, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, bound for the remote kingdom of Rundoon. The other trunk, a decoy full of sand, will be carried by the old, weather-beaten ship, the Neverland, captained by the sinister Bill Slink. While no one is looking, Slink marks the queen's trunk with a chalk X. At the last moment, he swaps the trunks. Gremkin, the schoolmaster of St. Norbert's Orphanage for Lost Boys, sells Slink three orphan boys. Prentice, 
Ted, and a nameless orphan known only as Boy. Grimkin tells the boys they'll serve as helpers to the king of Rundoon, but Slank indicates a more sinister outcome. After realizing that no one cares enough to say goodbye to the orphans, the boy proclaims that he hates grown-ups. On the Neverland's deck, a gang of malnourished sailors prepares the Neverland for the voyage to Rundoon. A squadron of British Navy seamen, led by Lieutenant Gregors, arrives to fetch Lord Astor, who is paying Slink to take care of Molly. Molly and Mrs. Bumbrake are traveling aboard the Neverland, which is taking a slower, safer route to Rundoon. As Molly and Lord Astor bid farewell, a crate containing the orphan boys bursts open and the boy catches Molly's eye. Before he departs, Lord Astor confides the mission's details to Molly, speaking in Dodo, a language known only to Dodo birds and some very special humans. Aster places an amulet around his neck and a matching one around Molly's. He warns her to never take it off or let anyone else touch it, and to use it if she ever is in trouble. Molly asks to be part of the mission aboard the Wasp, but Lord Aster promises her an exotic vacation once the mission is complete. Molly says that she is only an apprentice star catcher, a word that catches Slink's ear. Aster departs for the Wasp. Alf, a kindly old seafarer, escorts Molly and Mrs. Bumbrake to their cabin in the ship, and the Neverland sets sail. Molly's Cabin on the Neverland In their cabin, Mrs. Bumbrake describes to Molly a family she used to work for in Brighton. The cruel master would beat the cook, an island boy who was an artist in the kitchen. On his way to feed the pigs, Alf checks in and flirts with Miss Bumbrake. Molly, a lover of all animals, follows Alf out. In the bowels of the Neverland. Unseen, Molly trails Alf on the long journey to the bilge room. On the way, she discovers sailors gambling, singing hymns, and torturing Mac, the world's most inept sailor. The Neverland Bilge. Dungeon. As Alf enters the bilge, Molly slips in behind him. The three orphans gather around Alf and his bucket of food. Prentice, who identifies himself as the group's leader, demands to speak to the captain, while Ted dives into the food only to realize he's been fed worms. The boy asks Alf about their fate, but he refuses to answer. Alf leaves and Molly appears, startling the boys. The boy challenges Pretense's leadership and captivates Molly. The boy lashes out, but Molly challenges him, which sparks something new in him. Molly leads Ted and Prentice to find real food, but the boy doesn't follow. The boy flashes back to St. Norbert's Orphanage for Lost Boys, where Grumpkin is beating him. The boy imagines having a family. Molly re-enters to fetch the boy, saving him from his nightmare. The Wasp, Captain's Cabin. Gregors escorts Lord Astor inside the ship and then reveals that his real name is Smee, and the seamen are pirates. Captain Scott is bound and gagged, and the real seamen are in chains below. Smee demands the key to the trunk, but Lord Astor refuses. Just then, the pirate crew begins to tremble in fear. Smee elaborately introduces the most feared pirate captain on the high seas, Blackstash, 
who enters and immediately vomits into a bucket. Blackstash, so-called because of his trademark facial hair, is sometimes poetic, but malapropriasm prone. Seasick psychopath who threatens to find and kill Molly unless Aster gives him the key to the trunk. When Aster refuses, he steals the trunk key. The amulet around Lord Aster's neck begins to glow. The Neverland Passageway Molly's matching amulet starts to glow and the boys notice. Molly divulges that her father is on a secret mission for the queen. Mrs. Bumbreak comes searching for Molly so she and the boys can escape down a corridor and, inter- and encounter a flying cat in Slink's cabin. Molly knows that the only thing that can make a cat fly is star stuff. She realizes that the queen's treasure is on the wrong ship. She tries to distract the boys from the star stuff by suggesting a bedtime story. The boy unexpectedly blurts out his darkest secrets and dreams. Molly entrances the boys with the tale of Sleeping Beauty and leads them away from Slink's cabin. Back on the wasp, Stash opens the trunk only to find sand. Smee deduces that Slank must have swapped the trunks. Stash complains to Lord Aster about his quest to find a great hero to oppose so he can be a great villain and commands that the ship be turned around. The wasp pursues the Neverland. In the bowels of the Neverland. After the boys have been lulled to sleep by Molly's bedtime story, Lord Aster contacts her through the amulet and warns her that pirates have commandeered the wasp. Lord Aster instructs Molly to bring the queen's trunk to him at once, once the wasp catches the Neverland. Aster tells Molly that she is now part of the mission. The boy awakens and catches the end of Molly's communication. He insists that she tell him what is going on. The Neverland's deck. From the Neverland's deck, Molly tells the boy about star catchers, a handful of people whose sole mission is to protect star stuff. The boy insists that Molly prove that she is an apprentice star catcher. So she puts her hand around her amulet, closes her eyes, and floats a few inches above the deck. Molly explains that a star catcher's primary duty to collect star stuff as it falls to the earth and dispose of it in the world's hottest active volcano, Mount Jalapeno, which is on Rundune. The boy tells Molly that he is going there to help the king, but she bursts his bubble and explains that King Zarbroth is actually evil. He would kill for even a thimble of stardust. Star stuff. As the boy laments, Slink enters and throws him overboard. The boy, who cannot swim, starts to drown. Molly dives into the ocean and saves him. The Neverland and the Wasp. As a hurricane stirs up in the ocean, the wasp appears on the horizon. Molly drags the boy back on board and revives him. Slink sees the wasp and assumes that the British Navy must have discovered the trunk swap. He prepares to outrun the ship, but the boy takes the wheel and changes course. In the midst of the storm, the wheel flies off the deck and goes spinning out to sea. The Neverland lurches. Below deck, Alf is again flirting with Mrs. Bumbrake, who stops his advances in order to find Molly. On the bow of the wasp, Stash and Smee are delighted that Neverland, the Neverland is heading straight toward them. 
Then the two ships meet, the pirates board the Neverland, and fight with the Neverland sailors. In the bilge, Molly congratulates the boys for doing something big. She then dashes off to get the trunk from Slank's cabin. The boy realizes that there are more important things than saving his own neck and runs to help Molly. On deck, Slank and Stash square off. But just as Stash gets the upper hand, the Neverland splits in two. As Molly and Mrs. Bumbrake struggle to move the trunk, Slank intercepts them. Mrs. Bumbrake throws the ship's cat in Slank's face, and Alf steps in to throw Slank overboard, where he drowns. Molly asks the boy to stall the pirates while she gets the queen's trunk to the wasp, and the boy sits on the sand trunk to protect the treasure. Stash encounters the boy and tries to lure what he thinks is the queen's trunk out from under him. Stash offers the boy a place on his crew and tries out some piratical names for him. One of them, Pirate Pete, strikes a chord with the boy and he chooses a name for himself, Peter. Losing patience, patient, Stash knocks Peter off the trunk, opens it, and realizes he's been had. As Peter celebrates his own cleverness, Stash knocks him overboard. Lord Aster calls to Molly and tells her to bring him the trunk. Molly is torn between saving Peter and obeying her father. Knowing that the star stuff will float, she pushes it in the water and tells Peter to float to a nearby island. Alf and Mrs. Bumbrake search for Flotsam and make a raft. Ted and Prentice cling to one another. Stash commands Smee to follow the trunk. Molly dives into the ocean and swims after Peter. Peter rides the trunk toward the island with fish swimming in its golden wake. Act 2. A group of mermaids recount in a vaudevillian song their experience of being transformed from regular fish after swimming in the wake of the star stuff. The Mountaintop Lookout Point. Atop a mountain on the island, Peter absorbs the freedom of open skies and clean air for the first time in his life. A yellow bird flies around his head, pestering him before fluttering off. Ted and Prentice arrive, and Peter enlists them in the mission to get the trunk to the wasp so they can leave the island. In the distance, Mrs. Bumbrake and Alf paddle towards the shore on a makeshift raft. The boys hide the trunk and go in search of branches. The jungle. The boys descend the mountain and go deeper and deeper into the dark jungle. They are quickly separated and soon realize they are not alone. Stash and Smee are also creeping about the jungle, and Molly, a champion swimmer, has arrived as well. Mollusk Territory The island's natives, the mollusks, capture the boys. The chief, fighting Prawn, sentences them to death, a fate he reserves for all English trespassers because he was sold into slavery by the English. They are to be sacrificed and fed to Mr. Grin, the island's hungriest crocodile. The boys offer the gift of a bedtime story to the mollusks, hoping they will fall asleep, allowing the boys to escape. Fighting Prawn <clears throat> accepts the offering, timing them with a kitchen timer he wears as a relic of his slavery as a kitchen boy. The boys perform Sleeping Beauty for the tribe, but because they all fell asleep, during Molly's rendition of the story, none of them can really remember how it goes. 
Molly approaches and watches from behind some trees. At the climax, Molly blurts out that the boys have ruined the story. The Mollocks are amused, especially because Molly's name means squid poop in their language, but decide that the English invaders must die anyway and toss them into Mr. Grin's cage. Mr. Grin's cage. Trapped inside Mr. Grin's cage, Molly and the boys bicker about what to do. Molly formulates a plan, impulsively kissing Peter as she thinks, to his shock. Peter gets Mr. Grin to open his mouth and Molly tosses her amulet in. Mr. Grin grows to an enormous size, bursting out of the cage and floating away as Molly and the boys flee. The mollusks are furious and pursue them. The beach. Smee and Stash cannot find the trunk. Stash decides to trick the kids into bringing it to him. Mr. Grin, now several times normal size, floats toward them, forcing Stash and Smee to take cover in the jungle. The jungle's edge. Peter wants to get off the island and begins gathering materials for a raft. Molly reminds him of the trunk and the mission. Out in the sea, the boys and Molly notice a flashing light. It is Lord Astor contacting Molly using Norse code, a system akin to Morse code used by ancient Vikings. Lord Astor instructs Molly to bring the trunk to the beach. The boys and Molly race to the top of the mountain to retrieve the trunk with the mollusks in hot pursuit. To give Molly room to reach the mountain, Peter draws the mollusks' attention to himself. The chase and the fall. Peter runs up the mountain with the mollusk on his tail. The yellow bird returns and distracts Peter who falls into a crevice and finds himself in a shimmering lake of golden water, far, far underground. Peter floats, neither drowning nor afraid, and gazes up at a mermaid. The underground grotto. Floating in the grotto's golden water, Peter is greeted by the mermaid who calls herself Teacher. Teacher explains her transformation from fish to mermaid and describes the power of star stuff to fulfill dreams. Teacher and the island give Peter a second name, Pan. Teacher reveals that Pan has two meanings. The first is fun, frolic, anarchy, and mischief, all things a boy likes. Before telling Peter the second meaning of Pan, Teacher reminds Peter about the trunk. Peter climbs out of the grotto and bolts back up the mountaintop. The stormy night. Molly, Prentice, and Ted arrive atop the mountain and fear Peter's demise. In the distance, they spot Mrs. Bumbrake and Alf sailing towards the island on a makeshift raft, using Mrs. Bumbrake's bloomers as a sail. Molly, Prentice, and Ted drag the trunk toward the beach. A storm begins as night falls, making the journey dark, unpleasant, and frightening. As the others fall asleep, Peter appears and surprises Molly. Peter tries to get in the trunk, but Molly tells him that exposure to so much star stuff is very dangerous. They discuss their impulsive kiss in the cage, and Molly waxes philosophical about avoiding sentimentally until she falls asleep. Peter gingerly tries to open the trunk, but flees when the boys stir. The beach. Smee, disguised, tries to lure Molly, Prentice, and Ted with a ukulele song. Stash intervenes and tries to bait the kids with poisoned fruitcake, but Molly identifies him and exposes his plot. 
Smee re- reveals two prisoners, Mrs. Bumbrake and Alf. Just then, the mollusks enter with prisoners of their own, Lord Astor and Captain Scott. Mrs. Bumbrake recognizes Fighting Prawn as her long-lost kitchen boy from Brighton. Fighting Prawn uh, proclaims that Betty Bumbrake was the only English person who was ever kind to him when he was a kitchen slave. Stash pulls his knife on Fighting Prawn and tries to get the trunk from Molly. Molly must decide between saving Fighting Prawn's life and her duty to the Queen. Suddenly, Stash's words are echoed back to him as Peter continues to distract Stash and challenges him. Peter, Ted, Prentice, then Molly attack Stash, but one by one are outmatched. Stash captures Molly with his razor at her throat. Peter realizes the only way to save Molly is by giving Stash the trunk. Although this means he will never leave the island, he acts selflessly and surrenders it. Stash is impressed by Peter's heroic gesture, realizing that this is the worthy opponent he has been looking for, but lifts the lid to find an empty trunk. The water that seeped into the trunk has dissolved the star stuff and is now diffused into the ocean. In a fit of frustration, Stash slams the lid down on his right hand, cutting it off. Delirious from the injury, he vows to be Peter's foe for all eternity. Hearing Mr. Grin approaching, the pirates leave to lure the crocodile to join the crew by feeding it Stash's severed hand. Fighting Prawn honors Peter as a true hero and allows the English to leave and exits with the mollusks. Mrs. Bumbrake and Alf settle down happily together and Captain Scott proclaims his intent to explore Antarctica. Lord Astor makes Molly a full-fledged star catcher and promises her at a St. Bernard puppy when she when they return home. With the star stuff gone, their mission has been fulfilled. Peter mentions his encounter with teacher to Molly and Lord Astor, who to Molly's horror, she and her father realize that Peter cannot leave the island. They realize that Peter, by being dunked in the golden star stuff infused waters of the grotto, has been transformed. They share with him the other meaning of Pan. The island and its inhabitants are now his family. Lord Astor captures the yellow bird in the hat, adds the last of the star stuff from his amulet, and turns the bird into a pixie to protect and guide Peter. The fairy flies off, and Ted and Prentice chase it down the beach. Peter, now the boy who would not grow up, reluctantly bids farewell to the heartbroken Molly with a kiss. As the wasp sails away, Peter begins to forget what happened and settles into the eternal present of childhood. Years later, the grown-up Molly watches her daughter Wendy fly off with Peter, taking solace in the fact that Peter now has someone to look after him for a time. Prentice, Ted, and the fairy enter. The fairy talks to Peter and suggests that the lost boys join him by taking a dip in the waters of the enchanted grotto. As the Lost Boys race down the beach towards the grotto, Peter Pan flies off for the first time. The The end. end. He goes chasing waterfalls. Won't stop until he hears that curtain calling me. When he's calling me. He's a short-term 
Stanford ADD problem kid Never can know or see where the problem is It's crazy mind Trust me, sit still for story time. So now let's discuss the parts of the show that we liked or might have needed some more work. Cha-cha. Um, I really enjoyed this show. Though I have to admit, Peter Pan has a, a special place in my heart. You know, it was the first story that my like I remember my mom raising me on. So like, you know. Reeves on Peter Pan, so there it is. It's the it's the groundwork of my childhood. Um, the show felt very much like a well produced school production in the style and design and the presentation, and I mean that in the best way possible. Right, it was like found objects and like put together by like kids putting on a play in the backyard. Yeah, it was like. Um, I don't know, construction paper and, and bits of cloth and things like that. You know what I mean? I, it, although, like, everything was, like, polished, it also wasn't polished, if that makes yes, any sense Yes, it at was all. unpolished, polished. Yes. Yes. Um, the story was brilliant. Um, uh, that synopsis was very long, I know, but it was brilliant and creative and absolutely clever. The characterizations were so magical. Well, and it, the style of the show is overacted in the best way possible. Yes. It's like melodramatic. Oh, absolutely. And so I let, I took out a, like, I took out a good chunk of stuff when I was summarizing it, and it's still also very long. So that just kind of tells you, but it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it. No, no, no. But I think you, you nailed on the head in that this is such a melodrama. Mm-hmm. Such a melodrama. Um, I love the creation and interpretation of the before Peter Pan world. So telling us how we got here. Very much felt like Wicked in that we get to see how the characters in the world came to be. You know, and I never really thought about that. You know, where did Peter Pan come from? Where did all the, you know, we, we knew very little. We knew that Captain Hook's hand was fed to a crocodile. But from what we knew, Peter had chopped it off and fed it to the crocodile. And this is saying, well, not exactly. He... It was an accident, and then they wanted it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, what a twist. Like, mm-hmm. And this is how Peter ended up being in the, ended up in Neverland. And da, 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 da. like that, I thought this was really, really And how clever. the world of Neverland got created. So you're, as you we're going along in the story, you start to see how these characters came to be and that. And I just went, oh, this is just fun. Mm-hmm. This is just good fun. So let, why don't we go ahead and break things down then. Just snap, crackle, and pop these little boxes. And we'll start, as always, with Shed. I um, mean, from what I remember, it was there was hardly a set to it. There were there were there was a painted floor. There were set pieces. There were things that would come down and dangle. Dingle dangle. Well, as I've mentioned before, it felt had that school play feel, but it was still absolutely gorgeous, and it was much bigger than it appeared. Um, I loved the cave and the forest sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it felt like, I think those, I'm remembering those being like painted on the walls. And then the, just those deep vines and things, you know, the, the jungle, I should say jungle, not forest sets. They were just gorgeous. I love the fact that, that they created whole scenes and worlds with just minimal pieces and items. 
it is imagination at its finest, you know. Crates yes. and little flags that were used and 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 washing line and stuff to to symbolize the ships on the sea and 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 the beach and things like that. You know, we're making a raft and it's just going to be we've got this cloth to be water, but we're on a raft. You know what I mean? Like it was it was that kind of thing. Yes. So we they didn't come out and be like, "Look, we're on a ship and and you can clearly see it because we built this elaborate ship." No, they were like, "We're on a ship and here is a crate to show that we're on a ship." Mm-hmm. Um I, one of my favorite things was the crocodile, because they use these two eyes, these two balloons for their for his eyes. Yes. And then you know, like the flags that they'll hang sometimes at like car dealerships, those little triangle flags, they strung yes. those to be its teeth. So you have these 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 plastic like banner flags and these two balloons for eyes, but you knew exactly who it was. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent, and that was kind of one of the best parts. So that's kind of the way the set played out throughout the entire show. Is it was, I, I can't put my finger on the style, but it was just like child's play in the best mm-hmm. way. Yeah, that's like exactly. But I think that's the best way to put it. It was child's like a play. child's fort. Yes, yes, where you could just see you could see the beginnings of the fort, but then if you were in the fort, you could see the whole thing. It was it was a child's imagination coming to life, where we're like, look, I have a box, but it's actually a robot kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So, moving on to costumes. They were in that same style. So simple, but so communicative. Communicative. Um, w- this is one of my favorites. So, before we saw the show, because we'll get to when we saw it, but I remember a, a Broadway ad where, where Smee's playing the guitar and Black Sash is, you know, we're one of the best musicals on Broadway. Um, and Smee goes, but we're not a musical. And Black Sash goes... Don't sell yourself short. And Smee just plays the ukulele and it's just, he strums it. There's no real, like, music. And Smee smiles and Black Sash has this, oh, like, you're, you know, pandering to a child. But then he looks at the camera and he just smiles. But I remember seeing Christian Borle and his Black Sash is, like, electrical tape. Right. I actually think it's just drawn on. I think it's makeup. No, I'm pretty sure it's tape. I'm pretty sure it's makeup. Okay, well, I'll believe you, but in the ad it looked like, Electrical tape. I remember that. But if it's drawn on, then I mean, God bless. But it was, you know, this this was not the like I said, the highly polished like black sash that we're used to seeing in movies of Peter Pan or or Hook, you know, whatever. Um, so I just thought that was fantastic. And then the next thing I'm thinking of in costumes is is the mermaids, the pirates yeah. playing the mermaids. Yes, the pirates <laughs> With playing their the mermaids and. These shell bikini tops and... Like oh. found objects as bikini tops. I think the nicest costume pieces were the tails. But even those, it was, you know, you knew they were on a crate and they just had like these tails. It was almost like the, the cutouts at the beaches, you know, you'd yes. stick your head through. Very much like that. Um, the simplicity and found nature of the costumes, like you've been saying, is amazing. And they still did have like that 1800s like mid 1800s like feel to the to the like base costume mm-hmm. and then all like the pieces got put on top that became the characterization right that we started seeing the iconic pieces that we're looking for come through later on mm-hmm. you know uh, one of the things is Molly did end up like having a light blue kind of outfit on her and I was like oh Molly as in Wendy you know and things like that um, the, just the simple found element of it gave it that community school feel, which I think 
made it made the message even stronger. Yes. As we've said, you know, the fact that it looks like kids playing dress up makes that message that they're the story they're telling even stronger. Yes. Um so we're just gonna chug along here and hit the lights next. The lights were stunning. They really helped create color and change and mood on stage, especially for a fantasy. Yes. Um, this was not like school production. <laughs> um, the lighting was a huge part of creating those different worlds and scenes and placing and, 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 and helping to create that, that the simple set that was already being created. It helped it also give motion and life to stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially like I'm thinking of the water and the crocodile and the forest. Mm-hmm. Like giving movement so that we knew that it wasn't just like, and now we're in a f- the jungle. Right. Now we're on the water. But- and then also to be able to give us that duality of like, these guys are on the island and these guys are off the shore. And right. Like, and be able to like, give us different scene spaces as well. To be able to pull out that cloth to be the water, but the light on it had was able to project like ripple on it so we didn't have to flap the fabric which could have been distracting but the lighting is doing that and it gives us that movement so that the actors can just focus on being acting so there wasn't too much going on and we weren't our our focus was really where it needed to be so that was really great and i love the use of blues and purples and yellows overall which made which was like an imaginative and magical palette like i think when i when i have those colors in my mind and I think of other shows I'm just like these three colors in particular and when they're together it the the word that comes to mind is imagination yeah like that's what it's trying to communicate this this figurative world this imaginative world this this fantasy you know you don't really see a lot of truth in those colors when you see a show this is fantasy and that's what I love that that's the palette that they went with mm-hmm. you know so Chugging along into the world of direction, um, when you look at the story and you look at the idea, what an absurd idea for a show, but yet what brilliant execution. Right, because when I read the synopsis, every time I'm like, this sounds more like a film script, but it's not. It is. It, it is, sounds like a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Yeah, but it is not. It is actually meant to be a play and... It, being very simplistic. When you saw the ads or pictures for the show, you kind of had to do a double take, but having the director double down on the double down on the idea of like childlike innocence and imagination, it created something truly special. It made me want to go and play. Yes. And um it was a beautiful style of theater. Um, that perfect, and it was perfectly used to tell a part of the human ethos. I think Peter Pan is very much part of the human ethos, you know, um, this childlike innocence. Um, so the way it was told, using things like puppetry and shadows and things like that, and movement. I, again, it's a child. It's a story about children, and it's a childlike story, and we're using these childlike storytelling elements to to tell it. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't using. I'll say heavy adult vessels of like high drama or, or things like that. It was like I'm gonna use a sock puppet or something, you know. And right. Well, and it very leans into that suspending your disbelief. Yes. And just accepting the world um, for what you can imagine it to be. Yes. And it's to me, it's theater at its core or raws. Like we've been talking about, it's found space, it's imagination, it's bare. It's saying this crate is a ship. 
these flags are crocodile teeth. It's yes and. Yes, 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 yes. And. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we do have one more thing we have to mention, um, because there was music. There was music. It's a musical. No, it's a play with music. (laughs) But according to Smee, it's a musical. (laughs) Don't sell yourself short. Um, It was clever and mostly light. Um, I should say light-hearted. But it really helped to set the mood and add another layer to this delicious cake. And really helped to bring out even more of the humor from the story, like the mermaid song and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But what I love is it really emphasized the melodrama of this. Yes. This is a melodrama, you know. Um, and in your typical classic melodrama, I'm thinking like the early 1900s, late 1800s, like this is the the, the music of it's like the piano player with the silent film or whatnot, you mm-hmm. know. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. But that's the fun of it. That yes. is the fun of it. The show has had several notable performers, including Christian Borel, Celia Keenan-Bolger, and Adam Chandler B. Let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. So, theatrical impact. Um, it was, I mean, it's a brilliant prequel to Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And I I'm, click save on that. There's no other prequel of Peter Pan, so. Right. I also think that this show helped to solidify the style that this show was in. Yes. Like that imagination found... Yes. Um, play. It's honestly play. Yeah. It, it helped to solidify that as its own genre. In fact, I haven't seen a show like that. At least not on Broadway, but a lot of colleges... Do and, that, yeah. And they kind of have taken this style and kind of run with it because it is easy to lend itself to creativity and low budget. Yes. Um, and it created a work that was accessible to so many people, including being able to be produced at all levels, from community all the way up to Broadway. Because it showed that you didn't, you could have an elaborate story without an elaborate set. Exactly. Or costumes, or all the other elements. Yes. So going on to uh, the societal impact, um, I thought that it brought a beautiful story of a cherished world. You know, um... That thought when I wrote it didn't come out right. I know what I'm trying to say. It so Peter Pan has a cherished story around the world, right? Mm-hmm. And this brought a beautiful part of that story, another chapter of that story. And to me, that's a societal impact. Okay. It's kind of like uh, Finding Neverland. That was another part of the Peter Pan legacy. Seeing how Jay and Barry came up with the story of Peter Pan. Well, now this is. The prequel of, of this isn't how Jane Berry came up with it, but this is going in the story and going, well, where did Peter Pan and all that come from? How was this all created? So I think yeah. that's, you know, another thing that let society have a, a, another lens, another color of that. Um, I also think it's another family friendly show on Broadway. That's a huge societal impact to me. Another great opportunity for audiences to. Especially with it being as a coming of age story. Yes. Absolutely. And 
because we love a young audience. Young audiences, please keep coming to Broadway. We love you. Um, and a new style of storytelling that hadn't been seen at least as much lately, so it opened new audiences to the idea of how a story could be told. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we had just mentioned, I can't really put my finger on a Broadway show before or since that's been done like this. And I even struggle to think of an off-Broadway show that's been like this. Um, so what an exciting new experience for audiences to be able to to have a story told to them in this new way. Mm-hmm. What a fun, fun experience. Right. So is the show still relevant? This is a really hard question regarding the show because I think the show can still find a place on Broadway, but the story and style are so unique that I am concerned that it's like trying to capture lightning in a bottle. But this is a perfect show for regional, collegiate, community, even high school theater. But Right, it's a relevant story, but maybe not for Broadway. I and I mean I I just I go back and forth with this because I want to see what a new director and whatnot can do with this, but I'm also like sometimes when you mess with what's like don't fix don't if any broke don't fix it mm-hmm. that kind of thing so I worry that if we try to reimagine it it can actually backfire mm-hmm. and I also don't know is it is this the right time for but at the same time Peter Pan is timeless and we might. Maybe. Well, that's because he never grows up, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> but, but a story like this might be a good escape show or a good heartwarming show. You know, I, it'll be interesting to see what this season holds. Are we trying to escape? Are we still trying to challenge? Are we still trying to change? I think we're trying to connect. I really think that that's where we're going to be, is trying to reconnect. And so I don't necessarily think this is the show just yet. Yeah. But it'll... I think we're trying to escape. Okay. With looking at the shows coming, I think there's a lot of escapism in the musicals in particular. Mm, I don't know. I think but that the in, ones I, that are going to be successful are going to be about connecting. I, I, I would be very interested, but... to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So, we don't have much from this, sadly, but we did have the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2013. And, unfortunately, we didn't get to see the show on Broadway, but we did get to see it off-Broadway at New World Stages. And I remember it was just a really clever show. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. And, um, I <laughs> was this our... This was not our first show at New World Stages. No. Avenue Q was. Um, but this, this I think this was our second show. Yeah. This is the second show we saw at New World Stages. Um, well, and I just remember, you know, still being blown away by the story and the style. Um, because I remember really being so disappointed and sad that we couldn't get tickets on Broadway when we were here during its Broadway run. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it moved off Broadway and was successful just 
let me know how good of a story it was and how and it just it it refocused my excitement for it yes 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 a thousand times and and i remember after we saw it off broadway then it moved you know i remember the regional theater we worked at pioneer did it and then everybody was doing it so clearly this is a lasting story theater is back and we hope you can join us at a show soon You'll be able to catch Peter and the Starcatcher at a theater near you, I'm sure. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our new backstage passes, and I guess they're not so new, <laughs> um, can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and... Continue to keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town Met in a foreign land One sang the praises of Cape If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by David Munford, AJ Super, Jazzar, John Bartman, and Billy Murray. That's where I-